Church, let's pray to the great God that we stand in awe of our awe is really only appropriate when it's to God. Amen? Let's pray to this God together. Father, we just come to you and we ask that you would help us today to think and act and love more like you. That we would have hearts that would be moved maybe from our own self-interests, maybe from our own things that we've got going on, Lord, moved towards lost people who need gospel reality. Would you use this passage that you've used so many times before in the history of the church to embolden and clarify and to give direction about what you care about and about where your heart is at. Lord, help us to be moved so that we would be like you. We say this in Christ's name, amen. None of us have perfect priorities. In fact, if we think we do, <laughs> we're just wrong if we're, if we're to be honest. And the reason for that is because of the fact that we all have sin. We're sinful people, and, and even in our thoughts, in our actions, and emotions, and even our priorities are all out of whack because of our sin. But do you know whose priorities are not all out of whack, church? Do you know who has the most pure and perfect and praiseworthy priorities? Of course, we all would answer that God has those right priorities. We'd be right. So we need to look to God to see what he cares about, what he loves, what he rejoices over, what is truly important to him. For we, oftentimes, because of sin, rejoice over what is evil. And we yawn and are apathetic and careless about what is good and most beneficial and most biblical. That's just true in a fallen world. Christian maturity is thinking like God and agreeing with him and pursuing the ministry and life priorities that he puts forward for us. We've been seeing this in our Matthew series as lots of ungodly perspectives on ministry are put forward by some. Disregarding John the Baptist and disregarding the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. All for preference's sake. All because the childish generation wanted it their own way, and they rejected God's way. So, to further align ourselves with God's way, we're going to go through, very quickly, the whole chapter of Luke 15 this morning together to see what matters most to God, to see what he rejoices over, 
just to see what he cares about so much, to see what he would call us to prioritize in life and ministry, even here at this church, so that we might align our affections and thinking and lives with God's priorities, passions, and joy. Does that sound like a good endeavor? Is that important for us to do? I, I think so. Hopefully we could see that as well. And we're going to look at three parables in our pursuit of this end. The parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, really taking a high-level approach to get at Jesus' driving point. Now, before we even see our first parable, I want to say a brief word about interpreting parables as we begin, so that we can be helped as we go through them. Parables are stories that Jesus told in the Gospels to illustrate some key principle. They usually have one main driving purpose and point to take home for us to ponder. These stories, as we're going to see, just reveal what a great and amazing teacher that Jesus is. Being able to drive home significant truths in everyday examples. So let's get going with our first parable, starting with, and number one, the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15 and 1 to 7. And, and I just want us all to pay close attention, to especially these first few verses, to see the connection to what we've been seeing in our Matthew series, that there's a lot of prideful opposition to Jesus in his ministry by prideful, sinful, religious people who were just not getting what Jesus was putting forward. See the context here as we begin. Luke 15 and verse 1 says this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all driving near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Did you see the connection there at the beginning of this passage? Jesus here, as he's going into these three parables, the context here is that he's responding to a complaint by the religious elite of the day. The Pharisees were grumbling and complaining and gossiping about Jesus accusing him of eating meals and spending time with tax collectors and blatant sinners, which he was, <laughs> spending time with sinners. Seems like an important thing to do if we're going to reach sinners. When Jesus was doing that. They were gossiping and complaining about him. They thought it was wrong for Jesus to hang out with the well-known sinners 
that no self-respecting religious person would be caught dead spending time with, kind of according to their perspective. Think of the clearly unchurched people in our day. People who don't have any religious experience or background and lived lives of sin and rebellion, open, not caring about the church or religious things. These were the people that Jesus was spending time with. And the religious leaders just wanted to complain and gossip about him and call Jesus' ministry into question. This is literally where we left off in our Matthew series. And I hope you can see the parallel here. They were calling Jesus a glutton and a drunk, as we saw last week in Matthew 11. Why? Because he ate and drank with sinners. Side note, everybody. If you think that you are too good for the likes of Jesus based on your man-made religious expectations and rules, then you are clearly deceived because no one is better than Jesus, right? No one could put their nose up to the Son of God like these religious people were doing. What he did, Jesus that is, was by very nature righteous and good. And the other religious people and their add-ons and their expectations are just that. What? Add-ons. Made up by prideful people. Legalism. They thought they were all set, that they were righteous. But they were just as lost as these blatant sinners, ironically enough, that they criticized. Well, how did Jesus respond to them? He responded with a parable telling these religious people that the reason he spends so much time with these sinners is because these sinners knew that they needed a savior and he knew it too. And because they were not deceived thinking that they are perfect and righteous like so many of these other religious people of the day. The Pharisees, these religious people, thought that they were all set. I'm good. They thought that they were all right spiritually. They thought that they didn't have the serious problems of sins that they were seeing so that they could just disregard Jesus and this call to repentance altogether. But like I said, the reality was that these Pharisees were unbelievers themselves rejecting the only Savior that there is. And very cleverly, in this parable or story of the lost sheep, Jesus tells them that he spends time with sinners because his goal is to save sinners. It would appear that their goal, these religious people's goal, was to avoid them, to, to gossip about them, to berate them, come against them in those ways. Those who saw themselves as Righteous and religious, the Pharisees here, didn't think that they needed a savior. And Jesus shows that God's priorities are for the salvation of sinners who know and admit that they are sinful. You can't get saved if you don't admit that you have a sin problem. Which is why God rejoices over the salvation of repentant sinners, even one lost sinner. The story there is just so, so blatant. Like, 
Hey, you know that you'd go after that one. All the other sheep are just fine. They're in the open. Nothing. They're going to be okay. You're going to go get that one sheep. Why? Because that one sheep equals cha-ching, cash, value for you. You'd go and do that. Hello? <laughs> but how do you respond to, to the lost and unbelieving people all over and all around you is, is kind of the point here. These religious leaders made legalistic rules and set up a holier-than-thou expectation. <laughs> and they're being exposed by Jesus in a clever way in these parables about their godless, heartless, fickle, and completely kind of missing the point, blind guide situations that they were. They were blind guides to the blind. Do you rejoice over lost people being found? Do you go to them? Do you care enough to reach them? Or is your heart hard like the Pharisees? And are you scandalized by them to such a degree that you not only criticize them in their dirty practices, but also criticize others who might try to befriend and reach them? Last week, we saw that no matter what John the Baptist or Jesus did, they were criticized. And they did the opposite things. <laughs> they criticized them for both things. It's like, nothing was going to work. Some people are just that way. It's just they're against everything. And even today, even in our evangelistic zeal as a church, as a, as, as a Christian, and in our pursuit of the lost, uptight Religious Pharisees will miss the point just like them and complain and gossip and attack that kind of ministry as well. You've probably experienced some of that in your Christian life. Now, to be clear here, this does not at all mean that we adopt sinful practices in our evangelism. Okay? This is an important clarification. Or that we just somehow compromise our convictions and conscience, and go to places that are inherently just sinful and wicked, or approve of lifestyles or beliefs and somehow partner with people who are in grave error and danger. Don't get this whole thing wrong. Some people swing so far to that direction, and they're just all confused, and they put them and their families and their churches in danger for confusion on this point. It's not like that at all. But we do go and reach out and share the gospel with lost people. And we do it because it reflects the heart and priorities of God. So, befriend, evangelize, and spend time with sinners and, of course, non-sinful places and things to reach them. But don't approve and minimize their error kind of in the process. I mean, it's, it's really simple we are there to show them the good news of the gospel, to point them to Jesus. So it's not some kind of soft thinking that says, it doesn't matter how you live or what you believe. God just accepts your life and is fine with your wicked lifestyle and unbiblical doctrine and beliefs just kind of as you are. A lot of people talk in that way, and it's wrong. That's not what we're saying here 
at all, but it is connecting with. We should be connecting with and reaching unbelievers to share good news with them, like Jesus did. We know that they desperately need it. God has told us that they need it. Reaching the lost is his priority. Is it yours? And that's the thing. We have lots of priorities in life, don't we? And lots of things that we say that we really care about and pursue. But let me say this. We should, especially, align our hearts with God's heart for the lost here and go and share and rejoice when they are saved. So other priorities, as long as they're not biblical, are okay. But we must have these priorities. If we're Christians, it's on our hearts. We don't want to be grumbling like the Pharisees. We want to be rejoicing at the salvation of sinners. Let's see this reflected again, even in our next point and next parable, in parable number two. The parable of the lost coin. Look with me now at Luke 15 and verses 8 through 10 for this. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek it diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We see another parable here, another story here, illustrating the same thing, the same point. The priorities of God. The priorities of God is seen in heaven as even the angels are rejoicing alongside our great God. This parable or illustration of Jesus is just another one that is a subtle jab at the Pharisees who sought to speak negatively of Jesus' ministry to sinners. These are kind of subtle one-two punch, the first two parables. The biggest jab, or really kind of uppercut, <laughs> will be the final parable that we're going to see in our next point. But, but here we have something about losing something valuable. Similar to the last one, but now it's just like this monetary item, this coin that a woman would lose. We've all lost something like that, haven't we? <laughs> Probably everyone has. Maybe your phone or a large sum of money. I think of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, when George Bailey and the building and loan business was in jeopardy, if you recall. And it was about ready to have to close down because his assistant and Uncle Billy, remember, misplaced this large sum of money. Too much to be able to go forward. It's just one of those big moments in, in, in their business, in their career, in their lives. If you remember, they were looking frantically all over because it was such a huge deal to them. Looking everywhere they could think, completely distraught. Thinking about all the money that they'd lose. Uh, even losing their business. When we lose something value, if it's, if it's our phone or our wallet or a gift card or something like that, we're tearing the house apart, right? 
I know in our family, we've lost things. We have six kids, and it's so easy to lose things in the Pelichowski household. And we've eagerly been looking and then praying. Have you done this? Oh, Lord, help us find this. <laughs> and then deploying the troops to all be looking. Okay, you guys go over here. You go over here. We're looking because it's valuable. We need it. We want it. And it makes finding it all the more urgent, all the more important. And when we find it finally, if we find it, that is, we've lost things and have not found them in our home, and you probably have as well. But if we find it, we rejoice being thankful that we found this really important thing. Well, God, the angels rejoice even when one unbelieving sinner repents of his or her sins and is saved. More valuable than that sheep, more valuable than that coin, the sinner. We can disregard, ignore, put our nose up, judge. Kind of be jerks to unbelievers when we should be trying to reach them like Jesus did. We prioritize and rejoice over a lot of things. And it's not all bad to care about that. I mean, Okay, that I was, we've looked for a lost phone or a wallet or a gift card or something like that. It's not like we can't have anything that, we, that, that has a value, value to us. I mentioned in our newsletter just this month, just released, that it's okay for us to rejoice and be glad and be happy that the Chiefs are going to another Super Bowl. That's okay, that's good. We're all happy about it. You could smile about that. That's not ungodly, even in church. You could smile. Be happy and rejoice that they're going to another Super Bowl. And we will cheer hard at our Super Bowl fellowship that Pastor Wood mentioned before, just like we've done before. But hear this, God's priority is clearly holy and righteous and praiseworthy and warrants. It demands even. Not everybody is demanded to root for and be excited for the Chiefs, though all of us would like think that we should. And I think probably everybody here would but it's not like it's a demand upon us from God himself. Like I said, I, I know some Chiefs fans might jokingly say that it was. <laughs> we'll all be rooting hard. But what God clearly reveals here for us and demands requires our imitation and our priorities, clearly. Because despite how we might be tempted to think, especially kind of here in this chief's kingdom, though we might root, root, root for the team to win, the outcome of a sporting event, it just, it just pales in comparison to something with such eternal consequence as a sinner who's going to hell in judgment, being saved, rescued, coming into the family of God, trusting God. Everything pales. I'd say that about if the Chargers were in the Super Bowl. I'd say that about if we're on vacation and it's the best vacation in the world. I'd say that for anything, our careers, our families, everything. Everything pales in comparison to seeing the lost saved. So once again, let's be clear here. Root, root, root hard for the Chiefs and cheer. But align yourselves even more and even closer and root harder and cheer louder for that one sinner who repents. The one unbeliever who turns from death to life, rejoicing like God does over the wonderful work in his work to save undeserving sinners. 
Let's cheer for that. Let's care about that. Let's evangelize the lost in the hopes of seeing their salvation. If God cares about sinners being saved so much, and he does, then we also ought to care so much about the same thing as well. And this brings us now to our last point and maybe the most well-known parable in the Bible. I mentioned the former jabs at the Pharisees. This one, <laughs> this one's the haymaker because it implicates and rebukes and directly exposes the wicked hearts of these religious Pharisees. It puts them in their place. Parable number three, the parable of the lost or prodigal son. Look with me now at Luke 15, 11 through 32. There's a lot of text here, but it's familiar. Look at it, see it, hear it. Make the connections as you're reading. Let's pay attention to the word of God here. This is truly God's word. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him in his field to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. It's a rock-bottom moment, isn't it, church? Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. This, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What a story. But what do we see next in the passage we see in verse 25? Now, his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf 
because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now this parable means exactly what the other two meant. It illustrates the same thing. It illustrates God's priorities, that God loves to save sinners, that God loves when even one unbelieving, lost, confused, irreligious person or religious faker turns from their sin and runs to him. He loves it. Turns from their state of sin and death and lostness to life. He loves it. That's the point of these parables. Prior, these lost ones being unable to be found. Why? Because they were so far bad off, so far gone, so debased, so wicked, so very lost. But now, the same lost sinner is found. This is good news. To turn from sin and be a repentant believer is a life change that any Christian here in this room, if we're honest, is the best thing that's ever happened to us. Sometimes we forget all that God has saved us from. You ever wondered how far gone you'd be? How sinful, how confused. If it wasn't for the grace of God in your life, you ever think of that? That humbles us. That changes us. And it's fitting here, as the father told his oldest son, oh, that it's good to rejoice in that kind of salvation. This younger son was not only a prodigal, but he was the prodigal that we know. He disrespected and left his dad and home and was a guilty, sinful, ungodly sinner slapping the face to his dad, not wanting anything to do with him or his family. He was lost. He was as lost as you could be. So just down that road of wickedness. Unsavable, it would seem. Then he was found, and he was saved. The only appropriate response is rejoicing, right? Do you care about the lost in this way? Like God cares about the lost? Do you rejoice when they're saved? Do you do anything with your time and thoughts and life that they might be saved? We 
talked about all our priorities we can have, but is reaching the lost one of your big and main and priorities that's there on your heart? Does it excite you, people getting saved? Is it on your radar? Whether in your home with your kids as you teach and evangelize and disciple, is it on your radar? Or in your workplace with unbelievers that are all around you, is it on your radar? Or with your neighbors or unbelieving family members, is it there? Do you care about it? Do you pray about it? Or when you go to sporting events in town, is it on your radar? Or when we go to sporting events and a Super Bowl party or we go... Anyone's going to the Super Bowl, but if we were at the Super Bowl in person, is it on our radar as we're rooting for the Chiefs? Do we care about this lost person who may be next to us? Is it on our radar? Because if they get saved, God's going to rejoice. We should rejoice. And we're not rejoicing if we're not sharing. Is it on our radar? Or are you like the Pharisees who just wanted to complain and gossip? And spread rumors and lies about Jesus' life and ministry. Or John the Baptist's life and ministry. Or others who go and have hearts for the lost and hearts for the people of God's life and ministry. Or even about the lost themselves. Sometimes, sadly, Christians could be the most judgmental, hypocritical people in the whole world. Staring down their nose in judgment instead of staring with compassionate eyes to meet and share, that they might too be saved. And seeing that no matter how bad they are, we could have and would have been like them, lost as well. Is it on our radar? Some people won't go to the lost. They care nothing about the lost. Like the Pharisees, they despise them. They rejected them. They gossiped about them. But Jesus loved them. And they turned away from him. Jesus went after them. But they stayed as far away from them as they possibly could. Also notice in this well-known parable that the father's rejoicing over what God, of course, rejoices over. That's the salvation, the lost being found. Like the lost sheep, like the lost coin. Now it's the lost son rejoicing over these things. Rejoicing. That even in this true and godly response that's so important we should have. However, that is not how everybody responded in this parable, right? We saw it. That's not how everybody responded. His older son, rather than being relieved that his brother was now home, was irritated. Jealous. And enraged that his wayward lost brother was now receiving a party and being rejoiced over of all things. That's not fair, basically, he said. You saw that? We saw that clearly. Not everybody responds to good gospel ministry and good gospel work and good gospel conversions in the same good gospel way. The godly response is to go and reach and rejoice. The ungodly and unbiblical response is to avoid, ignore, and be apathetic and indifferent about mankind's eternal need. The ungodly, like this proud and hypocritical older brother, you see, they wouldn't go after the lost sheep or look 
very hard for the lost coin if it, if it had to be connecting with actual people or care about this brother's condition. They might care about monetary things, selfish things, but when it came to lost people in front of them, they, they were careless. They didn't look very hard, and, and they ignored. They just cared about them themselves, just like the older brother. He just cared about himself. And in this caring about himself, he had, I want us to see, the idea of fairness being all out of whack in his mind. This is really important for us to make a connection in. He's like, it's not fair. It's not fair. Never for me. I did everything right. It's not fair that this brother who did everything wrong. It's not fair. His idea of fairness was so wrong. Oftentimes, very religious people, Pharisee type, pride, hard-hearted types, they get this concept of fairness wrong. So, so hear this. That older brother who did everything right in his mind didn't deserve anything. No one does. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as we see in Romans. Whether religious or, or irreligious, all are sinners. None of us deserve. That's the point of grace and mercy we don't deserve. When the older brother, like the Pharisees, felt like they were righteous and good and holy and prim and proper. There may be people, in fact, I know that there likely are people right here in this very room who see themselves as good and proper, not like the sinners out there. They need, they need this message, Daniel. Oh, we're just good, upstanding people here at First Baptist Church of Gallatin. I know some other people that need this message. Let's go, let's go to them. They need it. Well, yeah, yeah, they need it, but we need it too. And if we don't see our need for it, we're like the older brother. We're like the older brother. We're sinners too. Now, I'm not saying that you, in this category, are like some of these heathen sinners and the drugs and sexual morality and perversions and things of that nature, at least publicly. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm not like, you say that you're not, but you really are. But I'm not saying that you are. I'm just saying that there's other sins that go on in religious contexts that are very wicked and heinous. Some of you maybe even like to compare yourselves with the blatantly worst of the worst while ignoring your own eternal need of a savior. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler, or at least I'm not as bad as that person in the news that we just read about, or at least I'm not as bad as that other church member that doesn't seem to have things together. At least I'm not as bad as them, and we're always comparing. We're missing our need for a savior. And in your own more kind of covert, socially acceptable sins, maybe pride, gossip, or, or those secret sins that nobody sees, but you act like you're all sat and good on. Even in that scenario, even for those, especially for those, because those in this category, they don't see their need. But we all should be whether blatant sinners or covert sinners or repentant believers who are seeking to glorify God, knowing that we're not perfect, knowing that we haven't arrived, seeking to humbly pursue the gospel, pursue to glory, the glory of God day by day, 
We should be desperate and needy and thankful for the grace of God, all of us, every believer. But if you think that you're not that bad, you reject that view of yourself and act like the older brother. You just don't see it. And instead of being humble, you're proud like the older brother, like the Pharisees, like many religious people in churches all over the world, maybe even here in in our church. But these parables, they set our agenda, the agenda, and align us. We should align with how we should care about these things and be motivated in our lives. We might realize, oh, we're off a little bit. Let's, Let's focus on what the Bible teaches us. That's the Christian life. Oh, we do that all the time. None of us have arrived. Even me. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by this passage to, to change and to move and to think and to act differently and to realign my thoughts and, and, and mind. We should go to the lost. We should share with them. We should pray hard and plead with them and care for them and care about reaching them. Not avoiding and judging and all these things, but reaching and evangelizing. And we should rejoice when and if they are saved. I'm not here promoting, once again, a kind of come one, come all. It doesn't matter what you do or think or act. And a kind of squishy sentimentality. I'm not saying that. We saw even a few weeks ago last month and in our Baptist faith and message teaching during our business or members meeting on the issue of cooperation and how we partner and cooperate in Article 14 of the Baptist faith and message 2000. And what we saw there is that we want to cooperate, but there's limits to cooperation. We don't just ignore doctrine. We don't just ignore lifestyles. If the church down the way is living in immoral, ungodly ways that is contrary to the gospel, we can't partner. Or if they think ungodly things, we can't partner. It's not just a come on, come all. We need to reach the lost no matter what. We open the doors and we need to just love everybody and never tell anybody the truth and never encourage anybody in, in, in good realities. Never call people to repentance. That's not what we are saying We're wanting to actually reach the lost so that they might be found and saved, not so that we could just kind of hang out with them and see them and say, pat them on the back for all the ungodly living and thinking. And just, oh, it's just so great. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what we should do as a church. That's not what any church should do. But call people to being saved means not affirming everybody in their wrong thinking and doing and living, but calling people, showing people gospel truth and reality. The angels and God rejoice when they're saved. Not just because they happen to be around and we, it's good, we got to be around. But we need a call to repentance, call to truth. Where are you at? Where are we at as a church as we're thinking about our priorities here? It's just so good for us to end on this. Just examining ourselves. What? What motivates you? What what motivates me? What causes you and I to rejoice, our church to rejoice over? I'm going to encourage all of us to align our thinking and actions and to add as a top priority what is so very near and dear to God himself. To care and love and pursue lost sinners, 
with the gospel and rejoice when they are actually saved. And as we now know and we're reminded of that even God and the angels are rejoicing along with you. There's not a lot of things that we could point to and say, hey, I know that God and the angels are rejoicing in this very thing. Oh, that's an important thing for us, right? We're in a context here in Gallatin with unbelievers of all kinds all around us. The blatant, irreligious ones who want nothing to do with the church, right? You've got friends like that. I've got friends like that. We know people like that. Blatant, irreligious, want nothing to do with it. And then we also have the pharisaical, hard-hearted, judgmental religious people who like to think that they have it all together. They are people who fall into the category of, there's some people like that in our town as well. And you would know someone in that context as well. They they don't seem to be all that excited about what God has done in the gospel reality and recognizing that they're this humble sinner needing a a savior. And it's like, they're just always talking about themselves and and, and what they do. And they've got this legalistic kind of works-based way of relating to God and others. And and you can just tell that they're just missing out on the glory of the gospel and the goodness of the grace of Jesus. And they're just all about what they've done. And they're all about what they don't do. And they're all about just really kind of prideful in their hearts. You know people like that too in that category, don't you? Both the blatant sinners and the religious sinners are our mission field here in Gallatin, Missouri. Let's remember that. Are you reaching them? Do you want to go out and seek and find them? They're lost. Their only hope is that they would be found and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. The real Jesus Christ. Not the Jesus of the cults or the Jesus of the religious, prideful, legalistic Pharisee types or the Jesus of the liberal churches who prefer feel-good and self-help sentimentality Instead of the truth, and simply affirm anyone and everyone, instead of calling people to faith and repentance and gospel reality. Not that. But are you reaching them the way that God calls us to reach them? And that is with the gospel truth and the love of gospel reality to sinners who need it. Just like you needed it prior to your conversion. And you still need it as a believer as you bask in the goodness and grace of God your whole Christian life. We never grow cold of the gospel. Do you have these gospel priorities rooted in your heart and mind? Let's close now in praying that we would be a church and a people that would be seeking to save the lost, that they might be found, and that we would be a gospel people through and through. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for Luke 15 and the glorious, even repetitive realities that you've shown us through your son. We're thankful how clarifying it is because we could get mixed up. We can get off track even. We can get the wrong priorities and we can completely sometimes ignore your priorities, Lord. Forgive us for our ignorance of your priorities. Forgive us for our lack of love and heart for the lost, but move us now and cause us to have that on our radar by your grace, Lord, we need it. None of these things happen apart from you doing this work, which is why we're praying to you. We're needy and sinful, 
And we can miss the mark. We do miss the mark every single day. But help us, Lord. Help us now. Change us here and into the future to care about what you care about so that we might also seek to share the gospel that the lost might be saved. We say this in Christ's name. Amen.